morning again. Let me share with you um, an article that was in the Reader's Digest. It reads this. Dee Marks was no stranger to adoption when she began to search for a daughter to adopt. Having already adopted her daughter, Marina, Dee hoped to find another to add to their family. She began the search for a teenager, and she was open to one with special needs. When a recruiter told her about a little boy that was considered unadoptable, Dee asked to hear more about him. She says, I hated the word unadoptable and told her to tell me more about this little boy. She told me that he was eight years old and had red hair. And that's what got me. I, I love red hair, Dee said. The little boy with red hair was considered difficult to find a home for due to his frequent and lengthy tantrums and several other undesirable behaviors at his age. For example, he had severe behaviors like throwing tantrums for long periods of time, throwing up to escape doing schoolwork, screaming and running away. He had not been taught how to play with toys, color, feed himself appropriately, or use the restroom, and he was eight years old. And my microphone's not on. How about now? Did you... A little excited. Did anyone hear what I just said? Start over. Do you want me to? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, let me cut it short then. So in this in this article in the Reader's Digest, it talked about a young boy. There's, there's a, a lady. She already adopted one daughter, and she was looking for another. And she was talking to this recruiter, and the recruiter told her about a young boy with red hair, which he labeled as unadoptable unadoptable and the reasons listed was that he had bad tantrums um that he would throw up so he didn't have to do homework he would run away he would scream he wasn't he didn't know how to feed himself like appropriately he didn't know how to use the bathroom by himself and he was eight years old and so he was considered unadoptable and in our passage today we'll see in galatians paul talks about an aspect of our salvation as being adopted into god's family and I was thinking about that, that article is that we, in a far more real sense, are way more unadoptable. This child, and as it said in the article, that he had some severe behavior problems. And Paul, in Ephesians, described us before Christ, before faith in Christ, as being sons of disobedience. The young boy had lengthy tantrums and he screamed and ran away. And Paul describes us before Christ as being children of wrath that would pursue nothing but passions of our flesh. And the young boy, he didn't know how to feed himself or go to the bathroom. And Paul, in Romans, he quotes Psalm 14. It says that there is none that do good, no, not one. And so we see this adoption that we are indeed unadoptable. Let me share another story of a parent and a child. It's a story of a guy, he's a wealthy man. He grew up, or I should say he grew up. He lives on the East Coast of the US here. Uh, a very wealthy man, he was a very successful businessman, and he, he was very gracious. He gave to a lot of ministries, different, different charities, some that maybe we even give to or that we, we know about and that we like. But he's very, he's very generous. But he had this son. And as a lot of us, it seems to be sometimes when there is a parent who's humble but does very well, and then he has children, 
and the children may not have to work for anything, but it's getting everything, the son had a very entitled mentality. And the son knew that the father had put away a very sizable amount of money for when he goes to college so that he can go to Harvard or Princeton or some other prestigious college. But the thing was, the son did not want to go to college. He just wanted the money. And so he would ask his dad and tell him, hey, I don't want to go to college. All I want is this money. And the father at first refused it, say, no, 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 no. Um, like, I want you to go to college. But then the son started to kind of to guilt the father and kind of frame it as if the father is not a good father because he's not giving this money. So eventually, the father gave him the money. And so the son, as you would expect, he ran off, he bought a Lamborghini, he bought a studio in New York City, and all he did was live it up with his friends. Did not work, did not do anything, he just kind of blew his money away and lived it up. Unfortunately, the economy crashed in 2008. And then his money ran out in the bank account. They took his studio away from him, they took his Lamborghini from him, his friends eventually left him because he didn't have any more money to, to be messing around with them. So he had to get a job. So he goes to a local business. He gets a job. But because he never worked before, he barely made any money. And he got all the worst jobs at the local business. And eventually, after months of working here, cleaning toilets and what have you, he said, that's it. This is, this is pointless. I should have. Use that money from my college like my dad wanted. So eventually he goes back to his dad's business, the business building. He goes in and he's getting ready to tell his dad, like, hey, I'm so sorry that, first of all, I guilted you and shamed you that you're a bad father for not giving me that money. And then when you did give it to me, I just threw it away. But as he was going to the building, his dad saw him. His dad ran up to him and the son started talking, but the dad cut him off. He looked to his personal assistant. He told him to tell the board that they've got a new CEO. He told the personal assistant that, hey, you're not my assistant anymore. You're my son's assistant. He put an all-access badge on his son's chest. And he told the assistant to start a party because they're going to party tonight because his son's back. You may recognize this story as the parable of the prodigal son. Where the son went, he blew the money of his father. And he came back to his father didn't think he should live as a son, but as a slave. And if you remember the parable, he came back and he started talking to his dad, saying, hey, I'm not worthy to be a son. And the dad literally cut him off, put his robe on his, on his son, took off his authority, his ring of authority, put it on his son, put sandals on him, and said, let's party because my son's back. And the son came. He came thinking that, hey, I'm not worthy to be a son, but a slave. But the father said, you're my son, you're no slave. And so live like a son. And so today, in our passage, in the whole point, is that those who are trusted in Christ alone are adopted into God's family and to stop living like a slave, but live like a son. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first part, verses 1 through 7. As we, uh, Before we jump into that, let me, you're probably sick of me saying this all the time, but let's kind of give uh, just a quick reminder of what's going on here, the context, um, because the context dictates the meaning of the text, and so that's why we always kind of remind ourselves, because it's been a week, and so it's good to kind of remember. 
So the big picture, remember, it's the, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. He's writing back to churches he planted in what is now modern-day Turkey. The reason he's writing it back to them is because false teachers have come in and have been falsely teaching them that, hey, in order to become a Christian and in order to stay a Christian, you need to follow the Mosaic Law. You need to be circumcised. You need to observe this, this day, these festivals. You need to do this, this, this. And they're teaching this. And Paul writes, and we saw especially in the first two chapters, that Paul defends his gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And he defends that. And then he defends his apostleship, his authority as an apostle, in order to defend his gospel. And then we just recently saw in chapter 3 that Paul makes the point that the law that they want to observe so much never was intended to give righteousness or salvation, but was intended to point us to Christ, to a Savior. He points out to Abraham that even Abraham, the, exa- the example, he trusted in Christ, he trusted in God, believed in him, and it was coming to him as righteousness. Basically, it has always been by faith that we become righteous and right with God. And we just saw last week about our union with Christ and our unity together in Christ. And then we come to our passage here, chapter 4. Paul says, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We'll see two parts here. The first part is our, the process of our adoption in Christ. And the second part is the benefits of our adoption in Christ. So the first part here, the process. Verse 1, he starts with what? He says, I mean that. So he kind of starts this section. Basically, I'm going to elaborate on what I was just talking about. Like I said this, this, and I mean this. Like he, he's going to kind of give it to us another way. Just to help us understand, if you're like me, I need to be told more than once, right, babes? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Say that kind of fast, honey. <laughs> but yes, he says, oh, I mean this. And so he gives us a picture. Verse 1, he says, he says, I mean that as the heir, who is the owner of everything, everything that they're at, the, the, the estate, everything is coming to him. He's the owner of everything. But as a child, he's no, he, he's no different than a slave, Paul says. So he gives us this picture and so the obvious question is, so how, how is that heir, when they're a child, how are they no different than a slave? Verse 2, Paul tells us. He says, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so just as a slave has a master, that heir, who is eventually going to be the owner of everything, when he's a child, he has masters, these guardians and managers. If you remember in chapter 3, we looked at one guardian. Paul breaks it up about being under the law, being underneath a guardian. We talked about that in chapter 3. And kind of that background is, in that time of culture, families would assign certain capable slaves to be in authority over the children. Like for their education, for their training, and for their welfare. 
In fact, some scholars write that the, the kids, they couldn't do anything without this guardian manager's permission. They couldn't go anywhere without their companionship. So they were really tied to this guardian manager. They were under it. And so Paul's saying, in that same way, the heir is no different than a slave because he's under a master. In our culture today, this, this division here between child and adulthood is kinda has been almost gone, right? We we, we hear like articles and writing about how there's four year old men who are still acting like teenagers and it's just it's very hard to find any kind of distinction nowadays between childhood and adulthood. In this time that Paul's writing, and basically in a lot of the ancient civilizations, the cultures, it was very distinct between childhood and adulthood. For example, the Jews, what marked uh, specifically a guy from going from a boy to a man was the bar mitzvah, and it is still today. That's where at age 12, the Jewish boy, or I should say until age 12, the Jewish boy was under the complete authority and control of the father. But come bar mitzvah, he received the responsibilities and privileges of adulthood. That was the day that marked that he's now a man. This is the same for the Greeks. A son, specifically a son, was under the father until about age 18 in the Greek culture. What happened at this time is that the, the son would actually cut his hair, because mostly he had long hair, then he would sacrifice it to the false god Apollo. And then he would take on responsibilities like a cadet to his city-state, his clan. For the Romans, it was a very similar kind of ceremony. But it was, the ceremony was called, and I'm gonna, it's, it's Latin, so I'm going to mess this up, I don't know Latin, it's toga virilis. And what happened there was that the boy would take his toys and the girl would take like her dolls and they would burn it in a sacrifice to the false Roman gods. My whole point is, in that culture, it was very distinct when you're a child to adult. And then when that ceremony happened, they were no longer under these managers and these guardians. They are now responsible for themselves. They are now adult. Paul takes that picture, that picture, the picture of a childhood from adulthood, and he applies it to us, to his readers. Verse 3, he says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So Paul is saying that when we were children, and he uses this picture of this coming of age, this spiritual coming of age of having faith in Christ, he says, before that, we are slave to the elementary principles of the world. Just as the heir, even though he's the owner of everything, when he's a child, he's under these guardians and managers, and he's a, he's a slave to his master. That's his point. That's the picture he's given us. So us, we, before faith in Christ, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What are the elementary principles of the world? And that was kind of a hard thing um, to look at. Um, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul uses the same word, and it seems to refer to like the worldly propositions, worldly thinking, the elementary principles of the world. So basically, before Christ, we are enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to sin, to death. I just repeated myself there. And we are enslaved to worldliness, worldly thinking. And so Paul gives us this picture. 
The heir, when he's a child, is no different than a slave, and he's a slave to these masters, these guardians, these managers, until when he comes of age. We, before faith in Christ, we were enslaved to these elementary principles, to the world, to the sla- to, to sin, to, to death, to worldliness. Then Paul says, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So just as earthly fathers in that culture had a set time, the toga virilis for the Romans, the bar mitzvah for the Jews, they had a set time that at this point, they're coming of age and they're now an adult. Paul is saying, we, before Christ, were enslaved to sin, but there was a set time by God, the fullness of time that Paul says, that God sent forth Christ. And so the question is, what, what does Paul mean by the fullness of time? Everything was right. Everything was set for the Messiah to come. Everything was set for the Messiah to come. On a practical level, there were a few factors in place that, that allowed for the, the spread of the gospel that was probably the first time in human history that was in place on a practical level. For example, language. Alexander the Great, before Christ came, he did a very he conquered a lot of areas in, in Europe, Asia, Africa, and he spread the Greek language. And so there's a large amount of people, diverse people, that had one lingua franca, that had one language. And this enabled the spread of the gospel because everyone had a very common tongue. A second point was relative peace. I say relative, I use that. It, relative peace, the, what's called the Roman Pax Romana, that there was political stability that allowed for an easy spread of the gospel. On top of that, the third point is roads and seaways. For the first time in history, relative, I should say, you could go on roads. You could travel. It was safe because of the political state. It was safe to travel. That's why Paul could travel all over the Mediterranean Sea because it was relatively safe for maybe the first time in history. And so on a practical level, this fullness of time, maybe the first time in human history, something like that could spread. And that's when God sent his son. On a spiritual level, the Old Testament was completed and all the prophecies were all set ready for the Messiah to fulfill them. So we get this fullness of time, this date set by the Father that he would send his son, and he does. And Paul says he's born of a woman. He says two things, born of a woman, born under the law. And they're important. Number one, born of a woman. His point is that he was human. He was humanity. He was fully God. He was fully human. The reason why this is important Because it's humans, you and I, who have sinned. It's you and I who are under the curse. It's you and I who deserve death. And Jesus can only be our substitute if he himself was human. And so because he's human, he could substitute for us. He could take our punishment. That second point that Paul makes, he was born under the law, is kind of twofold. Number one, he was a Jew. He was obligated to the Mosaic law. And he obeyed it perfectly. And the second point of that is he's born under law like we are as creatures are obligated to live in line with God's righteous and holy character, which we have rebelled against. But Jesus did it perfectly. And so because he was born of a woman, he's able to substitute for us. 
because he's born under the law and he did it so perfectly, we could receive righteousness. And so stepping back, that picture of the heir as a child becoming adult and no longer underneath these things, we, before Christ, were enslaved to sin, enslaved to death. We're on a road to hell. But after faith in Christ, we become a spiritual coming of age. God sent forth his son at the fullness of time so that we could have faith in righteousness. Verse 5, Paul tells us why. Why did he send Christ at this time? Verse 5, Paul says, To redeem those who are under the law. The explicit purpose of why Jesus came at the fullness of time was to redeem those under the law. And if you remember, redeem, that word came up chapter 2 or chapter 3, I forget now. It's the idea of buying a slave his freedom. So Jesus was sent to buy us back from the law, from the curse of the law. And why did he do that? Paul tells us, so that we might receive adoption as sons, as children. The explicit purpose of why Christ came is that we could receive adoption into God's family. At that time, in the Roman culture, adoption was actually a pretty honorable custom. It was looked highly upon in the Roman culture. And they would have a ceremony, kind of something probably that we, like we would do, for this, uh, the, the officialness of this adoption. And there's four distinct things that would happen on that day. Number one, the adopted child would lose all rights of their old family. Lose all of them. But they would gain all the rights as a fully legitimate child of his new family. So he'd lose all of his old rights of the new family. He would gain all the new rights of his new family. Number two, I thought this was interesting. The adopted person's old life was completely wiped out. This included debt. They had debt. It was wiped out as if it was never happened before. Completely wiped out. Number three, the adopted person became an heir of the new father's estate. Become a legitimate heir in the eyes of the law. And number four, in the eyes of the law, the adopted person was literally a child of that family. And is this not a picture of our salvation or adoption in God's family? Losing the rights of our old family this family of the devil, of death, losing that, gaining the full rights of our new family. We're an heir of our new family. We're a legitimate child of our new family. And everything in our old life is wiped away, including death. It has been cleared. And so Paul uses this picture of adoption, which was very clear at that time because it was an honorable custom, to show what we have in Christ, our adoption in Christ. Now keep in mind, adoption is for those who are outside of the blood family to become a legitimate child. And I say that because of this. Our culture likes to say that we're all children of God. We're all children of God, which is the exact opposite of the truth, is that we all begin as children of the devil. We all begin as children of wrath, wanting nothing to do with God. There is no one in God's family who has not been adopted. There's no natural born children in God's family. The only way to be a child of God is to be adopted. 
So if, you're, if your parents are a Christian, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. You do not escape God's punishment just because you go to church. You do not escape hell because your spouse is a Christian. You need to be adopted into God's family. And so Paul uses this picture of the heir when he or she is young, is no different than a slave because he has masters, these guardians. But there becomes a time when that person becomes an adult and he has the full privileges of adulthood. Paul uses that to show before Christ, we were enslaved to sin, we were enslaved to death, we were enslaved to worldly thinking, worldliness. But God sent forth uh, in fullness of time his son so that we can become a, a spiritual coming of age and become children of God adopted into his family. So that's the process of our adoption. Let's get to the second point. What are the benefits? And as we think about this, think of a, a legitimate process of adoption. The adopted child brings absolutely nothing to the table except their neediness. And the adopters bring everything to the family. They bring everything to give. In the same way, we bring nothing to God except for our neediness and our sin. And God brings blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And so we see these benefits. So verse 6, Paul starts talking about our benefits. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. And we see the, the triune God, the Godhead, all a part of our adoption. God the Father sent God the Son to redeem those under the law. God the Father sent God the Spirit into the hearts of those who believe in him. And the Spirit is the confirmation that we are adopted into his family. And I, I was thinking about this, like child of God. And we hear it so frequently, yep, child of God, yep, yep, yep. And I, I feel like, for me, personally, it can become just kind of like a title. Yep, that's cool. Yep, child of God here. It's very cool. But it's the reality. Uh, thinking about your own children. How much you love your son, your daughter. How much you would do for them. How much you would die for them. Or just thinking about the first time they walked. The first time they were able to say, Mom or Dad. When you taught them how to bike, how, you, how to swim when they go through their own unique struggles, how much you cherish these memories. And this child of God is not just a title, it's reality. God cherishes his children. He cares about his children. And Paul expresses this intimate relationship with Abba Father. He says here that, that crying out Abba Father and Abba is an Aramaic word, it, what Jesus would have, would have spoke at that time. It's pretty much the equivalent of daddy or papa in English. This intimate cry for your father. And we see here Paul again, as he did in our last passage, he talked about, again, he's, he's emphasizing an heir. You're an heir of God. You're an heir of the promise. Sonship, or being a child of God, equates to heirship. You are now an heir. You're a co-heir with Christ. Everything Jesus gets, we get. Everything Jesus gets, we get. Look at, Listen to this. I was, I was reading this passage in Peter. He says this. I tell you, I could not 
think of anything else but Ella Frisian when I read this. Paul, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And our sister in Christ, Ella, just passed away. And all I can think about is right now at this moment, she was enjoying an incredible inheritance. And just to think that that's what's waiting for us, this inheritance, this perfection that she's enjoying, that's waiting for us, that we have as an heir of Christ, as a child of God. So in addition to these two that Paul lays out, being an heir of this inheritance that escapes all of our imaginations, this benefit of our adoption as being an intimate relationship with God, let me just lay out four more as I was kind of just thinking through what the Bible says about our adoption in Christ. Number one, forgiveness. Continual forgiveness. God is not a stern or harsh or severe father who's reluctant to forgive you. He's not reluctant to forgive you. He's very willing to forgive. And there's continued forgiveness as we live out our days because he's a good father. Continued forgiveness. There's no need to fear being treated severely, being treated harshly. In fact, in Hebrews 12, where, where, where um, the, Hebrews, the, the writer of Hebrews talks about discipline. The discipline we receive from God. And all throughout that passage, he makes clear it's because God loves us. He does this out of love over and over. It's because of God's love he's doing this. In fact, this discipline proves that you're a child of God. God loves us. That's why he's disciplined us. So we have no fear of God treating us harshly because even in discipline, it's out of love. And it's done in a loving way. And so the number one, another benefit of our adoption in God is continued forgiveness. Number two is reconciliation. We are reconciled with God. Not only is his wrath towards us, has that ceased, but he has nothing but a good and loving posture towards us. Our relationship with God is not defined by condemnation or guilt, but is defined by peace. I, I think of the child who waits at home, maybe sitting on the couch looking at the front door, and he's waiting for his father to come home. And the reason he's waiting because he wants to see what kind of what, which father he's going to get today. Is it going to be the fun-loving dad who, who plays with the kids and is just enjoying life? Or is he going to get the, the angry father who sees all the, the issues, all the criticism, what's wrong, this is wrong, and just criticizes and will beat down the kid harshly? That is not what we get with God. We know every single day the God we get the slow to anger, abounding in love, merciful, gracious. That's the God we see. Every, we, we get every day. We know the God we're going to get. That's who we're going to get. We're not going to get some other God or some other Father because God is consistent. He does not change. And we are reconciled in Christ. Our relationship with Him is defined by nothing but peace because Jesus Christ has paid it all. There's nothing left for us to do. Christ has paid it all. So our adoption in Christ we're an heir. We have an intimate relationship with God. We have continued forgiveness. We are reconciled. And my third point here is we have confidence. We have confidence. In Hebrews 4, 
the writer says we can come before the throne of the living God with confidence to receive grace and mercy. With confidence. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't think of confidence when I come before my creator who knows all the junk that I've done, that I continue to do, that I continue to think, all that stuff. Um, much less come in front of Casey with that. I fear that. But with God, she's laughing at me. But with God, I don't think confidence is not the word I use at all. But because of Christ, because we're in his family, we can come before God with confidence. That number one, he'll hear us. That he loves us and he wants nothing but good for us. It may not be what we want, but it's going to be ultimately for good. We can come before him for confidence. Last one, provision. As a child of God, we, are, we have promises of provision. Paul says, Philippians 4, he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. as Sawyer, isn't it? Riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I think about Matthew 6. We, we looked at that maybe two months ago where Jesus says, Do not worry. See those birds out there? They need your soul. There's no birds out there. I know some of you look. There's nothing out there. <laughs> I saw some head turns. There's nothing out there. But he says, look at those birds. They neither sow nor reap, but the Heavenly Father cares for them. And you are of infinite value more than they are. God will care for you. Listen to this. Jesus says this a couple, just a little bit later in Matthew 7. Think about your own child. He says this. Which one of you, if his son or daughter asks him for bread, for cookies, for candy, for whatever, will he give him a stone? He says, or if he asks for a fish, for food, for a nice steak, for, for whatever, will he give him a snake? Jesus says, if you then, who are evil in comparison to God, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And we see this, this, this loving Father posture towards us. So just, and there's much more benefits, but we see here in our, our adoption in Christ, we are heirs of everything Jesus gets, we get, because we're a legitimate child of God. We have an intimate relationship with God because we're in his family. We have continued forgiveness. We have provision. We have confidence become before Him, and we are 100% forever reconciled with God. So, in light of this truth, in light of our adoption in Christ, live like you have these benefits because the reality is you do. Stop living like a slave and live like a son. Stop trying to earn your adoption because, first of all, it's impossible. And second of all, he's already given it to you. You bring nothing but your neediness and your sin, and God takes care of the rest. So we looked at earlier in the beginning at the parable of the particle son, we looked at the younger son. I want to end today with looking at the older son, the, the elder son in that situation. And if you remember and how Jesus tells that story, is that when the younger son returns, the older son, he's in the fields working like a slave. He's out in the fields. He comes into town. 
he, like a slave, doesn't know what's going on. He literally has to ask a slave, what's going on here? What's this all going on? He was not in the know, which the family is. So he's working like a slave. He doesn't know much like a slave in that, in that, in comparative to a son. And then he saw his father and he related to his father like a slave. If you remember, the son comes up to the father and he says, all these years I've obeyed you all these years and you have given me not even a goat to eat with my friends. And then the father responds, son, you are always with me. What I have is yours. So the reality is the older son, even though he was a son, and the father made that clear, you're my son. He lived like a slave. He worked in the fields like a slave. He, did, he wasn't in the know-how like, he, like a slave. Then he responded to his father like a slave would. And so as those who trust in Christ live as a child of God, live in that intimacy and relationship, live knowing that in the future we have an incredible inheritance that Ella right now is just getting a tip of it. Live with confidence as we come before God, not because we're so great, but because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Live that we are forever in peace with God because Jesus has finished it. Paul says there is no more condemnation. There's no guilt because Jesus has taken care of it. Live knowing that we have provisioned the promises of God that he will provide. Live knowing that God is with us, that he has forgiven us. And if you're here today and have never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, he makes it clear there's only one way into the family of God, and that's through adoption, through faith in Christ. So if you're, if you're here and have never done that, please talk with one of the elders afterwards. Please pray with me. Father, Lord, as we think about this, adoption, Lord, God, help us to... Lord, help us to see the ways that we've been living as if we're a slave, as if we're outside of your family. Lord, help us to to fully grasp the gospel, that we are forever reconciled, forever have peace, we have continued forgiveness. Lord, help us to, to live in light of this truth and the glorious gospel. Lord, help us to live in light of our relationship with you, that we can walk through today with the, the struggles that come up, all the frustrations, Lord. Remind us that you are with us, God, through all of it. Lord, help us this week to live as a son and not as a slave. Amen.